Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Tony Paquette, the Chief Financial Officer of Point72, a leading hedge fund with over $22 billion in assets under management. Prior to joining the firm in 2020, Tony was at SoFi, a publicly traded fintech company in Silicon Valley, as a business unit leader overseeing international, new business, treasury, regulatory operations, and the firm's application for their bank charter, just to name a few. Before SoFi, Tony was at JP Morgan, where he was a managing director and the global head of funding and liability management. And if that's not enough, prior to this, he held portfolio management roles in the chief investment office at JP Morgan and in treasury and corporate investments at Bank of America all after beginning his career as a research analyst covering the technology sector at Goldman Sachs. Tony is a dear friend, a mentor whom I respect, and a member of our advisory board at Scholars of Finance. We actually met originally while working together at SoFi, and his leadership and integrity stood out to me immediately when he joined the firm. In today's episode, we are lucky to spend our time learning from Tony about mentorship, how sports can inform business, and Tony's unique perspective on leadership. Let us know what you think on LinkedIn, Instagram, or shoot us an email at hello at scholarsoffinance.org. And don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues if you find it valuable. Cheers. Tony Paquette, good morning, sir. Good afternoon to you out in the East Coast. How are you and where are you calling in from? Morning, Ross. Yes, it is still morning here, barely by, by two minutes. Great. Great to see you. Great to be on the podcast finally. I am in Darien, Connecticut. I'm happy to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. This has been much anticipated by many members of our organization. Tony, want to dive right in. You know, we don't have enough time to even scratch the surface on the, the topics around mentorship and leadership that we're going to cover today. So first, why don't we dive right in? And if you can just, for our listeners and our, our, our members, share a little bit about your story and your background. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ross. Uh, happy to do that. So just a little personal background. So I, I grew up in Minnesota, a child of the 80s, grew up in a, a sort of middle class household. I had been in some capacity around finance for most of my life. My, my father's an accountant by, by trade. He was, a, he was a teacher at a, at a university level, owned his own accounting firm. It sort of been exposed to aspects of finance uh, ever since a child. Uh, I ended up going to University on the East Coast, Brown University, graduated with a degree in, in economics and started right into uh, banking and finance out of college. My first, my first job was at Goldman Sachs. I had a couple of different roles there in, in research and in trading during the, uh, started actually during the dot-com bubble, which was sort of a formative time for, for me and for a lot of people. And then moved on to different roles at a number of organizations. I've worked at, at Bank of America, spent a number of years at, at JP Morgan, went to work at a fintech company on the West Coast, where obviously I met you at, at SoFi in the consumer finance space, and currently am the chief financial officer at an asset management firm in Connecticut, Point72. So 
I've seen uh, a, a lot of different things in terms of career. I've got you know three children of my own, so when we think about leadership, mentorship, and all those those aspects, the parenting element becomes part of that as well. But uh, that's, that's a little bit of background on myself. Thanks, Tony. Really appreciate you sharing. Yeah, I've always been incredibly impressed by the trajectory of your career, the variety of experiences that you've had. Sort of the I would say the very rapid ascent. For a whole lot of reasons, in part, just because I think of your character, a lot of people who I think have moved up the ladder, if you will, as fast as you, there's a lot of ego, there's some hubris oftentimes, and you've always struck me as this very down to earth, grounded person. Um, there's not a lot of ego and you're just really trying to do your job, serve others, lead well, try to do right by your, your family. I think it's a perfect starting point is to talk about mentorship because one of the reasons that I had reached out to you when I was at SoFi and started asking you for mentorship was because through a number of interactions, I saw this. I started to build this perception of you as this sort of humble, thoughtful, confident leader. You had some of these qualities and characteristics that I wanted to emulate and that I was, you know, passively, you know, kind of secretly emulating. And then when we started meeting, you know, more explicitly um, talking to you about, and you're a big believer in mentorship. I'd love to dive right in. I would love to understand from you, you talk a lot about mentorship and the importance of mentorship, both mentoring, and you've talked a lot about the role that mentorship has played in your own career. Would love to hear your thoughts on mentorship broadly. Why do you think it's so important? And, and what are some of the principles that you you think about or follow when you approach mentorship? Yeah, sure. First, thanks for the kind words. You know, much appreciated. Mentorship is, is a concept that in many ways I, I hadn't fully embraced on a, a personal or professional level till sort of several years into my career. I grew up playing a lot of sports. I know we're going to talk about the impact of, of sports and in particular team sports a little bit later. Playing sports, being a part of coaching environments, leadership environments in, in, in that realm always taught me a lot about how other people perform, how they impact each other, how teams work together. And, you know, the same is true in, in business in a lot of ways. And, and mentorship is sort of this was a little bit of an amorphous concept for me early on in my career. But it's interesting because the longer I've been in business, the more important it has become both in terms of developing my, my own mentors and becoming one for others. And, you know, as I thought about this, this discussion point, you know, there's sort of a few key tenets or, or pieces that, that have come to be clear in my mind on, on what's important. One is when you think about mentors for yourself, or at least the way I've thought about it for myself, is, is choosing people that you want to emulate. You use that word, and I think it's a good one. There's a great Buffett quote, and, and I'm somebody who I read a lot. I, I'm a student of history. I, I learn a lot from, from others. I read a lot of books, and I kind of keep a recommended reading list and sort of quotes that I like. But there's a great quote by, by Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of all time, and certainly our generation, is, it's better to hang out with people better than you. Pick out associates whose behavior is better than yours, and you'll drift in that direction. It's so simple and so true. And so when I think about mentorship, that's a big part of it. It's about looking at people that you think or aspire to be like, seeking them out and having a conversation. We tend to be attracted to people that have either similar backgrounds or beliefs or whatnot. That's fine. A lot of times as I've become a mentor, you see yourself in people and, and that's part of the reason. But I think it's really important to, when you're seeking kind of a set of mentors for yourself, Seek diversity. You want people that are going to tell you the truth. You want people that are going to be independent. You want people who have been through challenging times are going to, and they're going to help you grow. And ultimately, 
folks that are are vested in your success. That's a really big, big part of it. The second piece I would say is, you know, when you're cultivating mentors, be clear in your communication, be clear in your expectations. True mentorship is a time commitment. It is something that when, at least the way I found it, and, you know, there's friendships and different forms of mentorships, professional, personal, parenting, all, all kinds of different forms. But but one of the things I think that's it's really helpful, it's been helpful for me as I've, as I've kind of assembled a number of folks that I consider mentors and, and, and ultimately friends is being clear on sort of, here's, here's what I'd like to hear from you. Not all the time, but, but at least, you know, every so often checking in, share things with them that help them, you know, make them themselves better. I mean, it, it's mentorship should very much be a two-way street and respecting that there's a, a time commitment. And then I think the last part I would mention is become a mentor yourself. I think the more you experience things in life, in business, and you can share that with other people, the more it helps you understand what's important in, in a mentor-mentee relationship. The other thing I would say is mentorship's not always about age and experience. It's interesting. When I was at, at JP Morgan, I, I remember Jamie Dimon saying one time that one of his mentors was a gentleman named Jimmy Lee, who was a very sort of successful and sort of famous investment banker for many years at the JP Morgan franchise. Jimmy Lee, rest his soul, he passed away a few years ago, worked for Jamie Dimon. And Jamie Dimon called Jimmy Lee his mentor. So it's not always about where you stand in a hierarchy. A lot of it is what are the experiences in life and in business that somebody can share? And I, I always found that an interesting one because I'm sitting here thinking to myself, what, <laughs> what mentors could Jamie Dimon possibly have? That's the way he described it. So I, I think those are some of the important things to think about. You know, again, I, I mentioned that I read a lot. There's an excellent book that John Maxwell wrote on uh, mentoring. I think it's called Mentoring or Mentorship 101. And, you know, those are just sort of basics and principles, but I, they're really, really important. And I think for those that are starting out either early in their career or developing or, or really just looking to kind of expand their networks, mentorship is just a, just a great way to do this. I appreciate you sharing another John C. Maxwell recommendation. I remember when you sent me The Leader's Greatest Return, me and Stephen, our COO, we read it together and it completely transformed how we think about leadership. So we'll plus one the book, even though I haven't read it yet. I, I do know uh, you've recommended John's work before and it's really solid. I appreciate all the points on mentorship. I, I appreciate you sort of laying out some of these key points that you think are important. One thing that you mentioned is that mentors should get clear on what they want from the relationship, even if it's something like career advancement in the past. You just said here, there should be communication. There should be clear expectations. How do you think those in a mentoring relationship should discuss those goals and intentions or can discuss those goals and intentions without making the relationship suddenly feel transactional? It's a good question. I think some of that depends on the nature of who, who the mentor and the mentee are. Oftentimes, we seek mentors in a workplace that are in the same company or even in the same sort of reporting line. I've had mentors that were bosses. In fact, three of what I would consider to be my closest mentors, all of which are close personal friends now, at one point in time were my, were my direct boss. To be clear, I don't think I, I had a mentor-mentee or at least not as rich of a relationship as I do now until I wasn't working for them. And so there's a dynamic here in terms of how do you develop that with somebody that you're working for in the workplace versus somebody who has sort of one step, at least one step removed of independence from directly impacting your fate. Fate's maybe too strong a word, but sort of your, your direction. I think number one is being 
transparent and, and honest about what it is you're trying to accomplish. The idea of a, of a relationship being transactional often has to do with immediate or short-term goals and things that somebody's trying to accomplish. If you can be a little more strategic and long-term in your trajectory and, and your objectives, both in business and in life, it can often open up a part of the dialogue that is much richer and much deeper. It also allows the mentor and yourself as a mentee to kind of step away and separate from the day-to-day. Again, coming back to if it's a mentor that happens to be a boss, that can be a little complicated because your, your next step is something that you're doing in the workplace with this individual. But this is where having mentors that are outside the network of where you actually work is really important because you can talk to them you can talk to those people in ways that perhaps you, you may not feel either as comfortable or, you, or, or will get a different perspective on your direction, both as a person, as a leader, and again, we'll have some aspect of independence. Uh, I said this before, but I, I do think it's really important to have mentors and ask your, your mentors to be brutally honest with you, right? I mean, the, the truth isn't always pretty, but it's, it's super important. And I do think the best mentors are ones that uh, that do that. They do it with compassion. They do it with sensitivity. But it's really important that that they give you the truth. And 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 I think that's an important element. That's something I actually wanted to touch on, Tony. You've said in the past. You know, we had you on with Matt Collier, one of our other advisors, uh, for a, a group discussion with our students about mentorship specifically. And you had mentioned that you believe it's important for mentors to quote challenge you, tell you the truth, and the hard truth. Um, how does a mentee cultivate a relationship where you can expect to be challenged and told difficult truths? How do you create that dynamic? It's a good question. Again, uh, I'm not sure there's a, a perfect way. I'd say a couple things. One, as a mentee, and again, as you become a mentor, you'll you'll see this from the other seat. Express the areas that you know you have uh, challenges. Be honest. Say, I I feel like I'm struggling with this. I'm not good at this. Do you see the same thing? mentor and can you give me some feedback on it like open the door for them make it not easy but let them know that like you want to talk about this oftentimes and in, in, especially early in a relationship somebody might might be hesitant to give you the the hard direct truth for fear or concern of damaging the relationship or or closing the door and so if you could open it with them or for them and and tell them look this is this is what i want and and i could really use your your clear feedback on it that's helpful again it's 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 a communication piece i think the other thing i would say on on in general on this point is don't force mentorship relationships and this isn't you know this could be around friendships or other types of relationships too you can't force them they take time they take reps the idea that you say, hey, that person is somebody I want to emulate. I'm going to go make them my mentor and I'm going to call them every week until they start mentoring me. It doesn't work that way, right? right? We're, we're humans. We have a, we have a, a, a different dynamic and an element about us, how we, how we develop relationships. So be patient, be consistent. And I think it's okay to be persistent, but let the relationship flourish. And I think, you know, when you, when you do that, and oftentimes if you, if you can share things, and one of the things that I, I've tried to do is just share little nuggets of information, either about yourself or about the world or about them that you think they might be interested in, right? I'll send a text to somebody who's a mentor of mine that I know it's something they're interested in. Why? Because I pay attention to their life. And it's just, it's a way to, to connect with them. And it, it, what it does is it sends a, not even a subliminal message, a direct message. I'm thinking about you. I'm paying attention to you. You're, I'm asking you to pay attention to me. I may not be asking you right now, 
but down the road I will. And over time that I think that helps, you know, again, this is relationship management. It's, it's, it's not that different in, in other relationships. The difference here is you have a, you know, sort of a separate, uh, it's not family necessarily. It's not your daily life. It's somebody you might be engaging with on a weekly, monthly basis, even less frequently, but somebody who understands where your mind, your mind set and your mind, your frame of mind is coming from and somebody that you can, you can open the door and make their, you know, make, make them giving their feedback easy, easy for them. That makes complete sense. And I think it actually segues into a, a, the final question on mentorship that I wanted to ask you. You've said in the past that there is a reward factor for parties on both sides of the mentoring equation. And I've definitely found that to be true. I mean, obviously, you know, you as a mentor of mine, other mentors of mine, I have gotten so much value in our relationship and I've learned so much. I've grown a lot. You've accelerated my growth trajectory. And I mentor a lot of our students and scholars of finance. I have several mentees who I meet with on a structured, regular basis. I have a lot of students reach out to ask for 30 minutes, 60 minutes for a coffee if they have a challenge they're going through. And I've found it incredibly rewarding to be the mentor also. I want to ask you if you can share a bit, and you know, you can use our relationship as an example or you know, speak in the abstract here. Can you tell us a bit about what you believe young mentees or mentees generally can bring to the table to give value to the mentor and said another way, you know, from the experiences you've had mentoring people, what are some of the characteristics of your mentees that you have found particularly rewarding to mentor? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, a few things sort of come to mind. Number one, I would say what makes a, you know, mentee, I don't know, desirable or, or rewarding you know, it's a few things. I think it's the it's the feedback loop between what you're sharing with them and how they react to it. So as a mentor, oftentimes you're maybe not early days, but eventually sort of giving advice or ideas and you often watch or, or ask the mentee, you know, what did you do with this? Right. Did you do something with the information I gave you? And, and if I gave you advice, how did you how did you take it? I don't think people expect, certainly I don't, when, when you give advice to somebody that they take and do everything you say. That's not the point of, of any mentor or mentee or any relationship for that matter. But I do think it, it's important that if you're going to take the time to share the idea, that they ingest it, they consider it, and there's a thoughtful sort of use for the advice. So I think seeing what people do after you give them advice is important, right? I think anybody who's giving advice and can rightfully say, hey, they did this and now I feel some part of ownership of their either success or failures or whatever, that's important. Two, I think the mentee sharing ideas, ideas that are potentially even outside the realm of what the mentor has come up with, they're coming from a very different perspective. Oftentimes there's a, you know, sometimes there's an age gap we talked about and, and you know, in today's day and age, there's a very big difference between somebody starting out in business right now coming out of college and, and when I came out of you know, college. And so I, I appreciate the ideas that come from those conversations. They're seeing things that I just probably would not see. And not only does it sort of keep me young, but it, but it, keeps, it, it keeps you posted on like what's relevant and what matters in, in, in their lives and in the world. I think a, a degree of consistency and energy is important. Somebody who is willing to continue to try to get better, that pays attention when you say too much of this, too little of this. Again, that's, you know, sort of reacting to feedback, but somebody that, that, that is willing to 
you know, bring, you know, bring their energy to, to the dynamic. And then, and then importantly, somebody who respects, I don't want to say boundaries, but respects the time element, right? We, we all have a lot of things going on in our lives. And oftentimes, if you're a mentor, as you become a mentor, you, you, you want to take on a lot of them. I, I personally like to try and mentor as many people as I can, but it's hard. And, and, and it does take time. And in, in order to do it well and to do it right, or at least the way I, I would like to be seen as a mentor, there's not unlimited time. And I've got, you know, family and job and all those things. So I think somebody who respects that is important. But, you know, a lot of it is what they do with the information. How do they respect and trust the relationship? And, and what do they bring back to you that helps? Yeah, I appreciate you sharing this notion that bringing ideas as a mentee is really helpful. It actually makes me think back to our time at SoFi. And when I first started meeting with you, right, if you recall, when I, I came over to your desk, asked if we could grab lunch, we had our first couple of lunches and you would say, you know, Ross, I'm curious, what are, what are things like? What are you seeing? What are you hearing among people at the firm? Kind of culturally, what's on people's minds? What's going well? What are their concerns? And I've never shared this with you. I'll, I'll tell you this in the podcast now. Before every one of our lunches, I sat, even our first lunch, I sat down and I thought, okay, here are like five questions Tony could ask. And here are some things I think that he would need to know, that he should know, right? So I actually viewed that first lunch as an opportunity to share information with you about what was going on in you know, middle management at SoFi and the kind of tenor of the people, if you will, the morale of the firm, or at least my division. And so when you asked, I actually remember this, you asked, hey, what's going on? And I thought I tried to share some very substantive, succinct points on, you know, this is going well, this is going well, leadership is being perceived as indecisive here and here, people are really excited about this and this. And I could almost sense this clear shift in your posture in that first lunch, where suddenly you just started firing questions at me. <laughs> and at the end of that, you kept firing questions at me and said, hey, let's get lunch again. I want to talk more. And at our next lunch, you had a number of questions again. <laughs> and I came prepared to try to just be valuable and be useful. And so one thing I did want to ask, I think it actually relates to teamwork uh, a lot because on a team, you've got to share information. You have to be open. You have to be transparent. And one thing I wanted to briefly touch on and kind of segue into is sports. You played sports for much of your formative years from grade school through college. You now serve on Brown's Presidential Advisory Board for Athletics. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how team sports have influenced your leadership, your life, just your, your view on the world and, and how you apply that to your, your success in your career. Yeah, sure. Happy to, happy to talk about that. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, you know, I've been around some form of athletics, competitive athletics for, for most of my life. And now getting into that phase of parenting and coaching where it's more of an observer than, than an active participant. Uh, although I, you know, I still try and bring out the spikes every once in a while, but you know, I'd say a few things that are, are just really, really important and, and direct connections between sports, competitive sports, and in and, and a lot of aspects of life, particularly business, but, but many others as well. Number one is teamwork. So, you know, I played a bunch of different sports, but one of you know, the one I was probably most competitive at was American football. And I still call American football the quintessential team sport. It, it, it can be obviously rough and dangerous at, at times, but What's, what's really interesting about the game, and I think it's unique in this respect, is there's 11 players on the field. They each have different positions. In almost every case, not every case, one person cannot do the other person's job. 
give you an example, and, and it depends on what level. If you're, in, you know, if you're five year olds, okay, everybody's playing the same thing. But if you're, if you're at a high school, collegiate, or professional level, the center or the offensive lineman cannot do the wide receiver's job. The wide receiver, well, in most cases, can't do the quarterback's job. But the quarterback can't do the running back's job. The tight end can't do. And so your your reliance on your teammates is not only important, but it's quintessential for success. If the team doesn't operate as a team, it will fail. Your reliance when you look down the line or you look at your teammates on each of those individuals doing their job respectfully is paramount for the success of the team. And so I think it, it teaches a lot about teamwork and reliance on others, number one. And, and by the way, football is not the only sport that teaches it. Every sport in some form teaches this, team sports. Um, two, I would say leadership in general. So in any organized function, business, family, athletics, other nonprofits, human leadership, human dynamics evolve around individuals that uh, arise either through sort of an elected form, official or unofficial, but, but leaders emerge, right? And, and oftentimes it's how those leaders behave. It's, it's the words they use to inspire it's how they conduct their own their own behaviors themselves that impact that impact others and it's how people choose to willingly follow those leaders right it's one thing to be named you know coach or captain by somebody else you know above you it's another thing to be elected captain amongst your peers those are very different things and and in team sports oftentimes and and, and this is one of the things that really relish about team sports is you, you elect your captain amongst each other. And that, tell, that, that gives them the, the responsibility to some degree, the authority, but really the responsibility to be a representative of the group. So when you think about leadership, and, and oftentimes this is the case in business, although not all the time, right? Sometimes people rise through the ranks of an organization and they weren't elected by their peers. And you can tell when that's the case. But I think, you know, that's one, one thing I really like about team sports. And then you know, the last one, this is, I think this is very applicable to many aspects of life is it teaches you discipline. It teaches you grit. It teaches you preparation, especially the higher level of competition you get into in sports, no different than business. It is a incredibly competitive world out there, whether it's, you know, finance and investing or fintech or entrepreneurship or uh, raising money in a, in a nonprofit organization, the competition is high and preparation for the game, for that one opportunity you have to, to meet somebody for the actual event. And, and even in many cases, preparation for the sake of creating your own routines and discipline are, are super important. I mean, obviously in athletics, you're talking about athletic physical training often, but I will tell you, and in, in, in there's, there's a lot of books and studies on sports medicine or sports study in, in, in the last 20 years, that the mental training and preparation around particularly the highest, most elite level sport is as or more important than the physical aspect. And so, again, I think that's very applicable to aspects of life, business, uh, to direct corollary. And, and I think you, you learn those things when, when you play, at least, at least I did. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's not, the other thing you bring with you is the relationships. So, you know, when you're on a team, not dissimilar from when you work at a company, you, you, may, you meet people, you develop you develop bonds, you develop relationships, you carry those with you forever. And, you know, the way you form relationships on a, on a field of play is, is different than in a workplace, but you have, you have these memories, these memories stick with you. In fact, I, you know, one of my dear friends is now the head coach at Brown university. 
and I'm talking to him all the time and, and I'm talking to him about football I'm, I'm giving him recruits. I'm sharing lessons from, from work and business. And yeah, maybe we're living a little bit of the, the glory days every once in a while, but, but this is like, we, we, we formed a bond and a relationship on the field 20 plus years ago. So anyway, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, important elements of sport. You know, there's some, mm-hmm. some great, as I mentioned, you know, books I like to read there. There's, there's a couple that I think are, are really good that, that I would point out on leadership. So John Wooden, uh, legendary basketball coach, UCLA, I think, I can't remember how many national championships. I don't want to butcher it. He's got just a phenomenal book called uh, Wooden on Leadership. And, you know, I, I read it a couple of years ago for the first time. It might've been written 30 years ago, but it, it, his, his, his elements and his principles are so enduring and so timeless and in many aspects, so basic they apply to literally everything. And so I've, I've given, I, I like to gift books, as you know, I've given that book to a lot <laughs> yes, of people I do. in part because it's very easy to understand the rules of basketball. Everybody knows who John Wooden is, but until you actually sit down and read this and say, wow, this applies to every aspect of my entire life. You really, you, you kind of don't, I didn't even make those connections until, you know, a couple of years ago. And so I think there's, 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 there's all kinds of books and Bill Walsh and some of the great sports coaches and leaders of all time re- really do a good job transitioning sport into, into life, sport into business. That's what I take away from them. There's so much there to, to unpack. And I actually want to pull on two threads there and segue into a conversation about leadership. You talked about number one, teamwork being a key benefit of team sports and something you learn that applies to business and life. And two, you talk about resilience, you know, discipline, grit, tenacity. We talk about the early mornings, you know, getting on the field. And what's interesting is I think leadership requires habits and disciplines that maximize the output of teamwork, that improve collaboration and teamwork. And I remember one of our first coffee meetings as well at SoFi, I was going on one of my silent retreats and you were like, silent retreat, what's that? And I said, oh, well, you know, I've got the, I've got this one page document with my mission, my core values, my, my principles. And every six months I go away, turn my phone off for three days and I reflect, I read, I journal, I just synthesize life and I update the, I update my values and principles. And I saw you immediately perk up and you said, I have a one page document with 20 leadership principles that I'm going to share with you. And over our next lunch, I want to, I want to hear more about your process on these retreats. And that to me for myself is one of my leadership disciplines. It is every six months, just turn off the 80 hour weeks, get some silence and solitude to think deeply and reflect on life and really assess who I am, what I stand for and incorporate my recent learnings into my operating model going forward. And that was something we related on. And I remember when you sent me the PDF, APP's 20 Leadership Principles, I read it and was floored. I was like, oh, it was one of those moments where you were like, there's so much wisdom here that I can't even grasp yet. But one day, if I spend, I'm like, if I spend enough time with Tony Paquette and I live to be old enough, I will understand all of the, everything in this one page document that he's got. And so you're one of the very few people I've ever met outside of like my students at Scholars of Finance who like also have a one pager of their values and principles. <laughs> and so I immediately felt this kinship and this really intense respect for you as well, having read them. I would love it if you can share a bit about how you developed your 20 leadership principles and really just talk more broadly about leadership. You know, what are some of the leadership principles 
that you think are most important for all of our listeners to consider, whether students, you know, a lot of students who are listening, young professionals who are listening, all the way to we have we have listeners who are partners and C-level executives at top financial firms. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The concept of writing these things down, again, hadn't really occurred to me until probably seven or eight years ago when I had seen a document that had somebody else's. And, and I don't think it was called principle. I, I forgot exactly what it was, but something that kind of laid out a, a set of behaviors or ideas in, in how they, it was really a workplace oriented document. But when I, I read it and I remember it was pretty short and it just similarly had sort of like clicked on a number of levels for me. And in many ways, these are behaviors and values that I have held deeply in my own sort of mind for many years and you know how you conduct yourself in the workplace and at home and in business and, and in life is, is something that each one of us you know owns ourselves but I had never actually written it down I had never written these these explicit things down and so I said you know at that point I said well I'm just going to write I actually took I remember reading this other person's document I, there was two of them on there that stood out to me and I stole those so many of this many of these and I've told you this are things that I have, and I actually write this at the top of the document. I mean, these these are many of these principles are are taken from the wisdom of others, and some of them are are developed and honed by my own experience. All of them are in some form, but oftentimes they're just timeless, in some cases basic things. But writing them down, making them a little personal, refining them, and 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 trying to make them as as succinct and as clear as you can, it is the exercise. So it's interesting because I, I, it was probably over the course of about six months. I, I hadn't shared these with anybody. In fact, I've still shared them with very few people until uh, now you've, you've mentioned it on a podcast. So, so more people know. But, but I, I'm sure <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll just share the PDF on my website. <laughs> yeah, right. No, and listen, I, I am pretty open about this. I'm, I'm happy to share these things. If nothing else, then if it helps somebody else in their life or their journey, then power to them. And, and this is, there's nothing copyrighted about any of these, but you know, I, I was I was looking through them because I knew we were going to touch on that for this discussion. And I, you know, again, even today, I, I go through every once in a while and and will tweak the wording because I think there's there's always something very um, elegant about conveying a, a concept in as few words as possible. I think that's one a, a very important aspect of communication is the written word and uh, and keeping it very simple and short. But I mean, I'll, I'll read a couple of them, but the ones that you know really stick out to me and have become you know more important as I've gone through my career. You know, number one, and it, it, it will always be number one, is lead by example, right? You as an individual, one as an individual, and, and we look introspectively at ourselves. you control your own actions. You don't control the world around you. There, there are some things you may have influence on, some things you don't. How you react is almost always more important than any event that happens. And so when you're leading and you're in a position of leadership, example matters a ton. People are watching people are paying attention and you, you can't forget that. And, and if you hold that at the center of your mind and you allow your behaviors to, or force your behaviors in some cases to be somebody that you, you want to be more like, then, then I think that that's kind of the golden rule. Some of the other ones that I, I try and be, these are, some of them are principles, some of them are more behavior oriented. One is listen first, speak second you know, listen four times as much as you speak. You know, the more you get into a leadership position, the bigger your teams, the team wants to hear what you have to say. But oftentimes it's really, really important to not only bite your tongue, you don't want to squelch or suffocate ideas that could come from an organization by sharing yours first. Took me a while to learn that. 
now every meeting I start, I, I start with other people's ideas. Some people don't like it, but but that's, you know, and I will eventually share my views. And if there's something that's absolutely critical that we get out at the outset of a meeting, of course. So not every situation is the same, but listening more than you're speaking without question, very important. Become a servant leader. I think you referenced it earlier in the discussion, putting others' interests before your own, sacrificing for the team, critically important, always doing the right thing. And I wrote this, you know, the, the, the follow-up to that is, even or especially when nobody is watching. This is about your own pride. This is about how you do anything is how you do everything. And you can't cheat yourself. If you cheat yourself, you're cheating everybody else. So there's there's sort of a zero compromise element to this. And I think that fits very much with, with integrity, both externally, but also perhaps more importantly, internally. Be honest, humble, and, and willing to show vulnerability. I think the word vulnerability and, and leadership for a lot of people, and I think for a long time, were antithetical. I think there's a, a style of leadership that's particularly when you when you think about some of the greatest military leaders or even political leaders that have and still today show effectively no vulnerability. And perhaps for some people that works. I think for the vast majority of, of people that I've worked with and some of the most impactful leaders that I've seen, it's in fact that exact vulnerability that makes them impactful. It makes them human. It makes them relatable. And so notwithstanding the fact that many of us want to be seen as strong and powerful and whatever, you know, omnipotent or whatever it is you just define your word, it actually doesn't work with the majority of human beings because the majority of people following you want to be related to. And the way to do that is to show your vulnerabilities and to show that you're human because nobody is in fact perfect. You know, a couple other ones, I, you know, be a truth seeker, be firm, but flexible, remain calm in times of crisis. This is, again, applies to a lot of things in life. In business, I've been through a number of different crises. Your natural reaction oftentimes is, and, and it's a, you know, this is, this is innate in our, in our human building is, you know, your, your systems kick in in terms of you know, system one, system two, and our hunter-gatherer instincts kick in and adrenaline gets going. But oftentimes that's when poor decisions are made. And so remaining calm, particularly in, in times of crisis, is important. Be a coach and be coachable. So we talked a little bit about this in terms of mentorship. You know, as a leader, you're you're a de facto coach often, all in uh, in your in some cases thwarted into positions of leadership, and, and you're not ready for it. But being coachable is 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 very important. It allows you to continually get better. I mentioned earlier. Hire, this is one where I, you know, Beck Buffett's quote: "Hire people that are better than you." As a leader, when you're when you're actually building a team. That's a pretty hard thing. I, I, how many times have you worked with or seen people where in sort of a self-protective mode, they don't want to surround themselves with excellent people for fear of other people taking their job? It, it is, I can't, I've only, it took me a while to figure this one out. It, it is the exact wrong reaction. The best you can be as a leader is to hire people that will not kick your butt. You have to be able to, number one, keep up, but, but, but that will make you better and allow you to move on to bigger and better things. And until until people get past that sort of little bit of its ego, a little bit of its you know self security, it's super important. But I am always looking to hire people better and smarter than me. It's actually you know not that hard with with the crop of people coming coming out of uh, you know into the workplace today. You know, listen to your gut. You know, over time you'll develop you know intuitions that are really important. There's that there's that internal aspect that you can't. If something's eating at you, there's a reason, right? Our conscience is a is a uniquely human feature that if, if 
uh, if ignored, can be really, really dangerous. And so oftentimes, you know, you have this little niggling fact in, in your mind and or issue in your mind, and, and, and there's something there. You, you cannot ignore it. Might, you, you at least need to acknowledge what, what the issues are, recognize your limitations, you know, develop a growth mindset, be a lifelong learner. An important one is embracing diversity while promoting meritocracy. And I put those two together because diversity is, is critical for success, both as a leader and any, in any organization, but it should not and cannot come at the expense of, you know, some element of meritocracy. And, and meritocracy is defined in a lot of different ways to people, but I think diversity is, is just, it's critically important for the health of an organization and, and ensuring that you, as a leader, you're getting a round set of viewpoints. It is proactive, right? I mean, you have to seek people from different from different backgrounds and different mindsets. And if you don't, you will end up with everybody around the table that looks just like you. And, you know, that can be a really, really dangerous place. So it's, it's an important one to embrace. You know, one thing I, I, we haven't talked a lot about, but I said, take care of your, your mind, body, and soul. I, I think, you know, as, as, as a leader, as, as a performer, as anything for me, anyway, I, it, understanding how I eat, exercise, rest, my, my outside relationships, all those things, you know, when we come to work, you bring your whole self. And I think this is a is sort of a new concept and not that new, but a lot of organizations have, have really leaned into this concept of how, how do we bring our whole self to the workplace? It's so important, right? You don't check your personal life at the door when you walk into the workplace. You might not be talking about those things and, and you, you may want, you may focus and likely focus on work specific things, but we're human beings. You can't compartmentalize aspects of your life. And so understanding your own your own dynamic and your body will change over time and your mindset, all these things, but, but you have to be proactively aware of that. And, and I think a lot of people that I've seen in, in business that tend to work, you know, work very hard can burn themselves out and, and they're not doing themselves or the people that they work with any, any favors. And then, you know, along with that as an important one, and I bookend it with, you know, with the first and the second, I don't, these aren't in any prioritization order is, is know your priorities in life, understand what's important to you in terms of, family goals, objectives. Part of it is an exercise like this, which is writing these things down and they change over time, right? People do goals. They do personal goals, new year's resolutions. I never used to do that stuff. And, you know, I, I, uh, I do them a little bit now, but, but oftentimes it's about just making sure you've got some element of that true North embedded in your, maybe not daily thought process, but certainly with some frequency. And I, you know, you've mentioned your your silent retreats, which I was, was, was a really, you know, sort of a, something that I've never f- quite fathomed considering the family and, and all the obligations I've gotten in life, but it's really, really important. One thing, and I mentioned a few things to read one, one of the pieces is actually not a book. It's a, uh, a speech, but one of the better pieces that I mentioned in this realm is a, uh, a lecture by a gentleman named uh, William Derezowitz. Uh, it's called Solitude and Leadership. It was a lecture delivered to the West Point plebe class, I think of 2010. And it's not that long of a read, but it is just an excellent, and I go back, I, I, this is one of those I read every year. I reread it every year because it, it highlights the importance of just those two words. In leadership, how important it is to take time to yourself, to understand thyself, how to focus on it, it's very practical and, and, and meaningful. And again, you know, things not that I didn't really think about for probably the first 10 or maybe even 15 years of my career, but have become increasingly important in business and in life over the last, you know, five to 10. Tony, there's so much to react to there. What I will say is I want to pin an ask 
more of a, just a statement that I'm going to have you back on the podcast a second and probably a third time. It'd be fun to go through some of these principles in detail and in depth. And as you were sharing yours and kind of reading through some of those, I was picking up on the ones that I also, like you, you saw there were a couple in this one pager that you saw that you actually put into your own principles. And I was even noting some of the things you shared from yours that I put into mine. One of those, listen attentively four times more than you speak. You know, people often say, you know, you have two ears, one mouth. And I remember reading your principles and seeing the four, instead of two X, it's four X. And that really struck me and it stood out in a way that was memorable. So that was one that I lifted, that I took, that I found really, really helpful. And then even you saying, just do the right thing always. Um, I put that directly into my my principles as well. So I'll just plus one that. I, I think it's it's really, it's just delightful to have mentors that you can learn from, whose principles you can adopt. Especially, you know, I just spent the last decade in my 20s. I tell my friends, I talk to older friends, especially saying, I feel like I'm still a child. Like I know so little. And when I was young, I didn't think this. You know, when I was like 16 or 17 or 18, like most 16, 17 year olds, I thought I knew everything and my parents were outdated. But there's really something to be said for wisdom cultivated through experience over time. I know we're coming up on time, so I do want to hit you with two questions before we have to wrap up, if that's okay. Okay. My segue. Sure. A lot of these values, a lot of these principles, you know, what scholars of finance, we talk about inspiring character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. And there's a very clear case for those principles manifesting in our behavior, you know, with our teammates, with our boss, with our direct reports, our, our vendors, our customers, in the people interactions. But then ultimately, you know, in your role at Point72, and for a lot of people listening to this, this call, they either are currently or will one day be managing millions or billions of dollars. You know, we had Scott Mather on not too long ago. They have over $2 trillion on the balance sheet of assets, right, at PIMCO. And ultimately, we need to see these, these values and these principles manifesting in the investment decisions, where we deploy this capital, understanding that where we deploy that capital incentivizes human effort and energy right? The future we invest in is the future that we receive or that we materialize. And one thing we're trying to push our students to do is to learn every day, how can they make finance a force for good very practically? You know, once they now they have their mission, they have their purpose to help others and make the world better. They have their values and principles they adhere to. What does it actually look like when they're a portfolio manager one day or when they're a CFO one day and $800 million of assets has to find a new home? As we wrap up, the, the second to last question I want to ask is how do you think we collectively, uh, all of us, you know, current and future finance leaders in the industry, whether VC, private equity, you know, hedge funds, asset management, how can we make finance a force for good? How can finance be used to create the good society, right? To improve human flourishing, solve the world's problems. Um, how can finance be used for impact? Great question. Not an easy one to answer, but at its core, the, the reason I wanted to be involved with Scholars of Finance um, from the beginning was uh, because that's what you're attempting to do as an organization. And a lot of it's around education for the leaders, next next generation of leaders in the finance world. And you know, when I think about concepts like a, a free market economy, what matters, how things, there's there's labor and there's capital. And where we choose to spend our time as individuals and who we hire and, and, and bring on board and a lot of things we talked about in terms of leadership, that's kind of the labor part, right? There's two, there's two aspects of output in, in, in the economy. Capital is the other. And you know, for, for many, many years, and there's a balance between those two. And that balance between capital and labor shifts over time. 
But with, without capital, oftentimes businesses, ideas, people, economies, countries, societies fail to fulfill their fullest potential. And so when I think about this concept of finance as a force for good, I think oftentimes as a leader or as an asset allocator, you have an objective of what you're trying to do. And if you're managing money and investments for, for example, limited partners, your objective is to do so and earn a rate of return, perhaps the highest risk tolerated adjusted rate of return within a certain parameter of investment guidelines. And you know, for many, many years, even the concept of, of a corporation was all about the shareholder, right? So the business roundtable, and this has been a, a pretty pretty hot topic over the last two or three years, the business roundtable of which my former boss or CEO of, of JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon, I think is still the, the head of the business roundtable. They actually shifted, I think it was two years ago, to a concept of stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder capitalism. And it was a really, I don't know that it was necessarily as profound as it often gets made out to be. You know, the prevailing thought for the last, you know, 50 years had been the corporation solely focused around shareholders, but we've, we've come to appreciate that it is not inconsistent to have the broader stakeholder at the, at the center. So that's employees, that's the communities in which we operate. That's, that's obviously investors, but it's exogenous impacts to the environment or externalities, I should say. And so, you know, I think those are really good developments in, in the world of business at large. I think for finance, it's about mobilizing capital to those areas that promote stakeholder capitalism in their most effective way. And, you know, oftentimes, as I said, ideas, concepts, business propositions, if they're not fed with capital, aren't able to, to flourish to their fullest. And you know, that's a lot of what, what venture capital is about is, is, is putting ideas, you know, putting capital at risk for ideas that might be somewhat unlikely or, or low probability of, of outcome, but extremely high probability of impact when and if. And I think, you know, as I've been involved in, in the private investment space over the last several years, it's really become clear and really enjoyable for me to kind of see those, those projects that garner venture capital, you know, and warrant venture capital investment. And I think things that are, consistent with a, a healthier economy or sorry, a healthier environment, a safer, more transparent, more open society, a more bar- balanced society and, and, and balanced objectives around all kinds of aspects of improving standards of living in not just the United States, but around the world. And there's differing opinions on how you get there, right? What level of government involvement, what level of private sector, but I don't, I really don't think there's a whole lot of debate around the concept that stakeholder capitalism has merit and logic. And so when I think about finance as a force for good, it's it's really sort of half of that equation in any free market, you know, society where, you know, capital and labor are the two inputs. And so I think, you know, educating people on in, on how to think about these things, it has to be, uh, you know, in a, uh, in a balanced way, right? If, if, you know, ESG investing is a, is a very, I don't want to say hot trend. It's a, it's a it's a evolution in the investing industry, in environmental, uh, social, and governance, and and for the right good reasons. Why? Because those things ultimately generate better returns over time. Much like the concept of diversity. For a long time, people felt like you know diversity, whether it's in management suites or boards or or employee bases at large, was about trying to find something that's balanced for society. Okay, yes, it is, but but it's actually very consistent. There's plenty of studies on this that it actually leads to better performance. 
higher returns. So these aren't mutually exclusive concepts and they're not competing with each other. So I think to me, the idea of finance being a force for good is how can you you lift the boats of all participants in, in a society, in a country, uh, in an organization and do it with, you know, transparency, the aspects of, you know, all, a lot of the things that scholars of finance is, is, is teaching compassion and integrity. These are all, these are all really important. And I think one aspect of it is to talk about it. It's something that at least when I was coming up in business, we didn't, there was ethics training and there was business training and they were almost separate. They weren't totally ingrained and not that they're, you know, that those things were, weren't achieving some of their objectives. But I think as we talk about these things in a very open and transparent way, and one of the things I love about uh, Scholars of Finance is it is, it is entirely dedicated to that. Um, and we need more organizations like like sellers of finance. I think you, you guys are doing an amazing job getting into the universities, you know, the, 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 the leading universities around this country. We're finally starting to get the responsiveness from a, a number of big companies in finance that, that see these are the kind of people they want to be bringing on at a young age because then they grow up to be the leaders and, and, and it helps their performance over time. So there's a very naturally self-sustaining element to it, which is the other piece of it that I would mention. I really appreciate it, Tony, and I, I uh, appreciate you referencing the business roundtable stakeholder capitalism announcement a couple of years ago. I was very, very excited for it when it was released because I just I think when you even when we even ask ourselves what is the end if performance is a means to some end, what is the end of that means that financial performance is, and ultimately I think it is. And this is very reductive, kind of summarized view, but this is something we could have two or three more conversations on on the podcast over the years. But I think it is creating economic efficiency to grow the economic pie to eliminate the systemic problems that face society. Um, like I, I, I talk to my students a lot at the, at the risk of sounding grandiose that as a, as a species, we play our cards right. We could all be alive when the UN actually sees the sustainable development goals all achieved. Like we could eradicate poverty, could eradicate hunger. Every human on earth could have education, healthcare, a home, right? Clean, potable drinking water. <laughs> Scott Harrison, one of our advisory board members, the CEO of Charity Water, we talk about this. People often will almost sort of scoff at you as this young, idealistic, naive 20 something or 30 something, but you know, we'll announce this publicly, but someone just gave us a million dollar donation two weeks ago, hearing that vision, that finance and capital can be deployed to its highest and most productive use to the tune of billions and trillions of dollars, eliminating societal problems, therefore increasing human flourishing, therefore increasing prosperity for all people. So I'm, I'm super thrilled about it. And I appreciate your point there. And I think what you said segued into my final question. You've been incredibly involved in Scholars of Finance, right? Our relationship began as just a couple lunches at SoFi, you becoming a mentor, then you joining our advisory board. Now you're a member of our Alpha Fund. You've made a lot of introductions to you know some of the leaders you've mentioned on the call today to help us grow Scholars of Finance. You've spoken to our students. You've just been such a huge advocate for our work. And with your time, with your, your resources. And we're incredibly grateful for that. But I want to ask my final question for all of our listeners, whether students, young professionals, seasoned investors and financial executives, why would you encourage them to get involved in Scholars of Finance? You know, why SOF and why should they get involved? That's a good question. And, and, and thanks. You know, I'd say a couple things. The 
one of one of the things I like about the organization and, and the way you're you're all building it is it's very entrepreneurial in its spirit. And you even mentioned this in in your your last comment. It's visionary and probably. I, I don't know if we're going to be able to see all of the UN uh, goals be achieved in our lifetime, but we should always be striving. I'll right? give you an over-under. <laughs> but but it, it actually, the debate isn't a binary yes or no, will these things be accomplished? It's progress, right? The key objective of, of any well-meaning organization, good intention leader, parent, whatnot, is, is progress. And I think your, I think the mission stands for progress in specifically the field of, of, of finance being a force for good and, and creating integrity. And I also think it's, um, you know, my, my other selling point is it's a very self-selective group, right? You, you, don't, you don't join a group saying we're promoting integrity in the leader, uh, and, and character and the leadership of tomorrow with, with malintent, right? It, it's sort of you know, mutually exclusive. And if, and if people do join with some sort of ulterior motives, they're going to be quickly rooted out, right? And and they they won't they won't fit. And I don't, I don't think you've had any of that, but but conceptually, it's a it's a a, a naturally self selecting group. And so I, I think that's important. And and again, I think over time, the idea of as somebody who looks for bringing in talent into an organization, hiring people, this kind of credential, I think is is important. I mean, one of the things we've talked about at Scholars of Finance is how how do you make that sort of a household name recognition for hiring companies, bodies, managers in the finance industry? If that becomes the case, it'll be like, oh, this person's a, a, a you know a Scholars of Finance grad. Like we understand at least something about what they stand for and why. I think if nothing else, that's that's an important element for for young people to consider and. And it also, um, you know, it allows them to, to kind of see the, the opportunities to have an impact and where throughout the financial services industry, functions or groups like this can, can really make a difference. So again, I, you know, it, it, it may not be for everybody, but I think, it's, uh, I think it's a great mission. I love the ambition. And yeah, it's hard, but you've, you've, as you've said, you've, you've brought a lot of very impactful people to the table. And, you know, I've seen it, it grow over the last two and a half years, and it's kind of just getting started. So I don't know if that's a selling point for everybody, but I, I've, I've really appreciated being involved. I've really enjoyed it. It's been, it's been rewarding for me. Happy to spend the time. I love seeing the young, young people, students. I get to go back to my alma mater, Brown University, and speak to them. And people ask all these questions. And it's, 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 you know, it's a great thing. There's ways to do that outside of you know, this organization. I, I do it in a lot of other capacities as well, but this is a unique one. And uh, it helps, it allows me to sort of touch a, a different segment of, young students and, and people, particularly diverse. I think that the, the student base that you've attracted to, to be a part of this is, is at least what I've seen is, is incredibly diverse. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but, but I think that's really, really important as we've talked about. And so, uh, yeah, so I think it's a feeder and a funnel for some of the greatest investment or, or, or finance leader leadership of, of the next generation. Thanks, Tony. I very much appreciate it. Appreciate all the, all the kind words and all your time today. I know you've got to run and you've got a family to take care of, speaking of knowing your priorities. So I just want to thank you so much for your time, for coming on the Investing in Integrity podcast. I'm excited to have you back on again. And I think we'll have to do an episode where we dive into your 20 principles. And then we'll have to do an episode where we debate whether or not we can achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals in the next 50 to 70 years. So those will be two fun conversations to have in the future. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tony. Good. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> Appreciate it.